You're listening to a podcast from Jubilee Church, Farnham. To find out more, visit www.jubilee.church. Well, it is good to be with you this morning. And it is good to have the whole Rice Gang here. Welcome, guys. Wonderful to have you. Mum and Dad look tired, but uh, there we go. And if you're visiting, uh, my name is Rick. I'm one of the pastors and elders of Jubilee Church, and you are also very, very welcome. Uh, if you are visiting, I'd love to talk to you afterwards. Come and grab me, and we can have a conversation. I'd uh, love to see how you can connect into the church uh, if that is what you're looking to do. Um, also, before I kick off, I just want to uh, stop and thank uh, Oliver. Where's Oliver? Oliver. Oliver and Aaron, who were the PA team today. Let's give them a round of applause. And Amy at the background uh, was also helping out. You know, the, the PA guys are here first, they go home last, you notice them most when it doesn't go right, and yet 99% of the time it goes right. And they deserve our appreciation and our thanks. So guys, thank you very much. But this morning we are in a series, and the series is called What Is? And we've been journeying through, in essence, some of our core... Uh, that's actually HDMI 2. I think it's, that's fine. There we go. Uh, some of the core truths of our faith. And we began with what is the gospel. We've looked at what is salvation. We then moved to what is worship. And last week, Sean spoke on what is prayer. And it's been great. I've, I've loved it. And today, we're going to be looking at what is the Bible. So, what is the Bible? Well, I have a few to show you here this morning, and this first one that I'm going to show you is my favourite. This is the Bible that I love most of all. It was actually uh, what I'd call my spiritual father's Bible, and he gave it to me as part of our mentoring sessions when I first came to know the Lord. So I was in South Africa, I'd just gone over there, he's a great Bible teacher, and we would sit together week on week and we read from the start to the finish of the Bible, and we'd read it, and then I'd go away and write all my questions, and think about it, and reflect, and pray, and then we'd come back the next week, and he would answer all my questions, and then we'd do the same thing. And I love this Bible. And before he was a pastor and a a Bible teacher, he was a printer. And so inside this Bible... It's like covered in all these tiny little comments and pictures and stories. And because he's a printer, it's like really neat and really small. And it's just wonderful. I go through it and then there's these pictures and these comments. And I just, I love this Bible. And it's got meaning to me beyond just the eternal truths that are in it. But as you can see, there are... Right? Two pages. The joys of children. I have four of them. It only took one of them. It only took one of them to reveal my sin and brokenness. Because when I came upstairs and I saw these two pages separated from the rest of the book, the words that uttered in my head are not repeatable. As the Bible says, what's called the old man came rushing back. And I saw these two. And not only that, 
Not only that, in one foul swoop, can you believe this? They took out two books, the end of 2 Corinthians and the beginning of Galatians, in one foul swoop. How do you do that? But this is my favourite Bible. But I love my children, we'll move on. Here's another Bible. This, in fact, is the first Bible that I ever purchased as a Christian. I became a Christian in 1994. I was living up in Chelsea, uh, up in the city, and I had just become a Christian on an Alpha course at HTB. It was wonderful, and I walked in, man, I was so excited. I, I reckon I was glowing with the divine presence of God. I was walking around, the revelation of God was on me, and I was loving it. And I walked into, I think it's Waterstones, I don't know if it still is, but it was Waterstones on Sloan Square. And I went piling into Waterstones, glowing, and, uh, and went up to the Bible section. And it wasn't really a very big section, to be fair, Waterstones. Uh, and so I went in, and I was just looking around, and then this Bible caught my eye. I never knew you could have a colourful Bible. I mean, it's, look, I was, man, this is about as colourful and as happy as I was feeling. So I grabbed it. This was my first Bible that I'd ever purchased, and I was so pleased with myself. And it was really only later, when I got home to the digs I was staying in, and telling someone how happy I was that I bought my first Bible, that they told me, you've bought half of it. It's just the New Testament, but I love it. I love it. This one, this one is my undercover Bible. This one's my undercover Bible. You see, I did the city commute for eight years, and when you get on those trains, you sit really close to other people. And so I, I was like, okay, I'm going to go a little incognito here. I'm going to go a little undercover. And so I went for this rather plain-looking black cover version, but it was the whole Bible. I got that right. It wasn't just half of it. So I had that. There we go. And then finally, there's this one, the message. And the traditionalists in the room all booed. And then the everyday reader types cheered at the message. So what the message does is it gives you, it's written in modern language. It try and attempts to capture the essence of what the author was saying. But in modern language, language that we would use today when we were talking to our kids or workmates or going shopping or whatever. So it's good for gaining a specific insight and perspective on the Scriptures, but if you're going to do serious biblical studies, probably not the one for you. But to answer the question another way, what is the Bible? We could say it's our sacred text. That's why it's called the Holy Scriptures. And rather than have me try and explain it to you all, I found this great video from the Bible Project. So let's have a look. The Bible's an important book. But it's really long. Yeah, it's a collection of many books written over a long period of time, but altogether they tell one unified story. So, what's the story of the Bible? Well, it begins by introducing us to a beautiful mind, the author of all reality, a being called God. And he has the power to take the dark chaos of the uncreated world and bring about order and beauty and a garden full of life. And to crown this accomplishment, 
God appoints these creatures called humanity, or in Hebrew, Adam, and they're made as God's image, which means that they're commissioned to rule this beautiful world on God's behalf by harnessing all of its potential and creating even more beauty and order. This is a story about humans using their power to do meaningful, life-giving work. But the question is, how? Yeah, humanity now faces a choice that's represented by a fruit tree. So humans could partner with God and find freedom by trusting in his knowledge of good and evil. Or they could seize power and define good and evil on their own, which, God warns, will kill them. And they hear the voice of a dark, mysterious creature that tells them the choice is simple. Take the fruit. It'll give you power and freedom to rule the world on your own terms. And so they seize this knowledge, and as a result, they become suspicious and self-protective. It leads to fractured relationships, violent power grabs, and ultimately, a whole civilization, Babylon, that has redefined evil as good. And so, God scatters this corrupted human project. And here the story of the Bible takes an important turn. We zoom in to the story of a man and a woman who come out of Babylon, Abraham and Sarah. Yeah, God promises that from them will come a new people, a nation that has another chance to make the right choice. And if they succeed, it will open up this new way forward for the rest of humanity. And this is why the rest of the Bible story is about this family. And it does not go well. Despite God's personal guidance, Abraham's family gives in to that same temptation to redefine good and evil on their own terms, apart from God. Even when their best people were in charge, rulers who loved God's guidance and had divine wisdom, even they gave in. And so Israel was warned by their own prophets that these choices would lead them back to Babylon, this time as conquered captives living in exile, and that's exactly what happened. So even with God's personal guidance, Israel fails. Who can succeed? Well, the prophet said that the story wasn't over. God's going to send a new leader to Israel to cover for their failures and to transform the people's hearts and minds so that they can make the right choice. And so the part of the Bible called the Old Testament ends, and these promises are left hanging. And then the biblical story continues into the New Testament. We're introduced to a man who comes from the line of Israel's kings, Jesus of Nazareth. And he said that he was bringing all these promises to their completion. He confronted that dark, mysterious evil that all humanity has given into and resisted its power. And then he announced that God had arrived to rule the world through himself. Jesus taught about God's definition of good and evil, and he said that real power is serving others. According to Jesus, it's people who love the poor and even love their enemies. These are the kinds of people who actually rule the world. And that's confusing, but also really beautiful. And so is the claim that the story goes on to make about Jesus, that he is God become human, to be for Israel and for all humanity what we could never be for ourselves. He came to take the consequences of our evil into himself, and his sacrificial love proved more powerful than evil, than even death itself. So now humanity's presented with a new choice. Represented by a new tree. Stick with the old way of being human, or venture into this new way. And in the story, those who choose the way of Jesus find themselves energized by God's own power. People who know that they are loved and forgiven by God can become people who love and forgive others in return. 
The Jesus movement quickly spread throughout the world, forming these new communities of people who follow the way of Jesus. But they faced problems. There was persecution from the outside by people in power, and inside there was confusion, even compromise. Yeah, because following Jesus is really hard. And so the movement's leaders called apostles. They wrote letters to comfort and to challenge these communities to stay faithful to the difficult way of Jesus. And they're called to hope for the day when Jesus will come and change everything. And so the Bible ends by pointing to the future day when all wrongs are made right, when evil is eradicated, heaven and earth are united, and humanity can rule the world together in the love and power of God. Okay, so that's the story of the Bible, and it brings all of these books together. But what's interesting is that each book contains a different kind of literature that contributes to the story in a unique way, and that's what the next video will begin to explore. Right, so hopefully that gives you a, a sense of what the Bible is like. See, the Bible is loads of books, and yet one book. Two testaments, but one story. It reveals God's nature and plan and His will for creation. From Genesis to Revelation, the Bible is a faithful declaration of the nature and character of God. And any time that we interact with the Bible and the Scripture, we should be left with a sense of the wonder of God, of the awe and majesty of who God is. Romans 12, 2 says this, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. The renewing of your mind as you read the Scriptures, so that you may prove what is the will of God, that which is perfect and acceptable, sorry, good and acceptable and perfect. And then in Ephesians 3 verse 4, Paul says this, by referring to this, when, and I've italicized and bolded that, when you read, you may understand my insight into the mystery of Christ, which for other generations was not made to the known to the sons of men, as it has now been revealed to His holy apostles and prophets in the Spirit. But you see, often the way we approach the Bible is from the wrong vantage point. So what I want to do this morning is, before we get to how we should approach it, I want to look at a couple of ways, incorrect ways, that I have approached the Bible in the past, so that we can avoid these. And I think this is going to be helpful in a couple of ways. The first way is, if you haven't done this, if you haven't approached it in the ways that I'm going to talk about, that should be helpful because you can avoid doing that. But if you have approached it this way, you can chuckle along and say, see, I'm not the only one. But the first Bible misstep is what I've called the Valium approach. Have you heard of the Valium approach? See, its aim, if we get a bit honest, is to soothe me. So let me give you an example. Say I'm preparing a sermon or I'm doing one of my assignments and I'm getting a little bit stuck with it. And you do often get that, don't you? You're writing an assignment or you're preparing something, you just get a little bit stuck. And it can start to get, you know, get to you a little bit. You start to stress out a little bit. So what do I do and where do I go? Well, of course, I go to 1 Corinthians 2 and verse 16. For who has known the mind of the Lord? That He will instruct him. But we have the mind of Christ. Right. Okay. I've got the mind of Christ. 
I've got the mind of Christ. Come on, I've got the mind of Christ. Or maybe I have a week's holiday coming up. And the one thing, I mean the one thing that I really want to do on my week's holiday is redecorate my bedroom and ensuite. I don't know if you feel like that. Ditch the beach, ditch the slopes, get me to home base, give me a couple of paintbrushes and away I'm just in my happy place. But you see, it wasn't going well. Day one was not going well. And we all know what day one is. Day one is prep day. And can I have an amen about the depths of the darkness of prep day? (laughs) I am having a full-on foot-stamping tantrum on day one prep day. I hate it with a passion. And so what do I do? Where do I go with that? Well, of course, I turn to Philippians 4 and verse 13. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. So what's the problem with the Valium method? Well, there are a lot of problems, really. But one of the main ones is that we approach the Bible in a way that makes us looking for us to feel better. We approach the Bible asking the Bible, how can it serve us, rather than asking how we can serve the God who it declares. So we want to avoid that one. You see, and another reason why we want to avoid it is that the Bible doesn't always make us feel better. I don't know if you've noticed that. Have you ever read Jeremiah? Jeremiah 17 and verse 9 says this, The heart is more deceitful than all else. It is desperately sick. It's desperately wicked. Who can understand it? Praise God. Feeling better? You see, looking to the Bible to soothe us and for it to serve us in a way that it soothes my immediate felt need is not the best way to approach our sacred text. Well, what about the holy moly method? Have you heard of the holy moly method? This one sounds great. It's so spiritual, it's, uh, you know, you really think this has got to be the method. I've tried the Valium method, that didn't work out so well, I'm going for the holy moly method. And the holy moly method, we sit down and we pray. And we say, Lord, thank you, Holy Spirit, that you are here with me. Thank you that you guide me into all truth. Now, Holy Spirit, guide me into all truth and you let the pages fall where they may. But you fall on Proverbs 31, verse 6, and it says, Give strong drink to him who is perishing, and wine to him whose life is bitter. (laughs) Bit strange, Lord. (laughs) Okay, that's not quite the truth I think you are leading me into. Let's try another one. Let's go, um, okay, uh, flip it over, and it falls on Job 13, verse 5. If only you would be altogether silent... For you, that would be wisdom. Hmm. Lord, it doesn't seem to be working. And it doesn't work. At best, you get a fragmented and incomplete understanding of the Bible and the gospel and the God who it proclaims. At worst, it just gets really weird. 
And which other book would you approach that way? Would you pick up The Lion, Witch and the Wardrobe and think, I really want to get to know, I've got, I, think that's, I think that's Aslan and there's a battle going on here. I really want to know the detail. I want to know all the stories that go on here. I, I think this is going to be great. Right, okay, well, I'm going to just flip open to page 55. And it says, And Edmund was saying to himself, I'll pay you all out for this, you pack of stuck-up, self-satisfied prigs. I'm not quite sure what that's all about, but anyway, let's crack on. I'll, I'll, I'll go over to page 105. Right, page 105. A little way off, at the foot of a tree, sat a merry little party, a squirrel and his wife and their two children, two sarts and a dwarf and an old dog fox, all on stools around the table. Man, someone told me C.S. Lewis was a master. It sounds like he's tripping. Okay, well, right, move on. Page 135. Right, we've got Aslan now. I've heard about Aslan. That us, this is going to be good. Okay, I'm going to know about Aslan and I'm going to understand the whole story now. Right, page 135. Aslan himself says, Yes, you may come if you promise to stop when I tell you. And after that, leave me to go on alone. What would you know? Would it give you a picture of the whole story? You see, the holy moly method, things can go really wrong. Because the Bible has these wonderful sweeping narratives, these great themes and stories which disclose the nature and character of God. And when you read in the holy moly method, you miss so much. Because we need to approach the Bible as a book. Of course, it's much more than a book, isn't it? But at its very least, it is a book. It has a start and a middle and a finish, and there's lots of books inside it that have start, middles, and finishes. So let's stay away from the holy moly method. Now, the last one that I'm going to show you today is the fortune-telling method. This is a great one, okay? I got my little Sophie to make me up this little fortune-teller, and it's like, we go one, two, three, four, G-R-E-E-E-E-E-N. Open up. What's going to say? Open up. And you see, the way that this can work itself out is that we have a decision to make. And you're looking for a specific answer. Perhaps you have a job offer. And you want to know if it's the right thing to do to accept this job offer. Perhaps it's a job in finance. And so you think, okay, I know what to do. Oh, we'll look at all the scriptures about finance and money. And you come across Matthew 21, verse 12. And Jesus entered the table, temple and drove out all those who were buying and selling in the temple and overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who were selling doves. Okay, I've caught Jesus on a bad day. I might just try that again. And you look again, Genesis 43, verse 12. Now I think I'm on to something. I think I've actually got it. Lord, I can really hear you talking to me with this one. Take double the money in your hand and take back in your hand the money that was returned in the mouth of your sacks. Perhaps it was a mistake. 
That's a bit more like it. I just heard from the Lord that I'm getting a promotion and doubling up on the cash side. All right, God, thank you for speaking to me. The trouble with this method is that we're looking for knowledge and we're promoting specific knowledge over wisdom. It reads the scripture through the lens of my immediate felt need. It can also have the effect that the Bible becomes some sort of magical book and we just have to unlock the right combination to get the answers that we need. But you see, the Bible isn't a book of incantations. It's the proclamation of who our God is. And you see, when you understand who God is, we see and understand ourselves in a different light. We see and understand ourselves in the true light. It gives us a true perspective on ourselves, which is based on a right seeing and a right knowing of God. You see, I can pretty well convince myself that I am a relatively good, a relatively generous, a relatively merciful person if, if my comparison is with other people. You see, you can always find someone to make that equation work. But when I look at myself in the light of what I see and what's been revealed and understand in the Word of God, it puts me in a whole other light. I see myself in the true light. And I have a very current example of this for you. On Friday, I dropped the, my older kids off at their tutorial group, and then I had to go down... Dropped them off and they had to go down into Sainsbury's. We needed a, a bit of shopping. And we were running low on a few things. And remember I've just said that I can convince myself that I'm a reasonably good and generous person. And so I'm walking along, doing my shopping, and then I get to aisle 24. The loo paper aisle. <laughs> and I see those shelves are being stripped. There are no big packets left at all. There's like just these tiny little four packets. And, and I'm like... The overwhelming urge just to just put the hand out, trolley, and just go along the shelf like this, sweeping them all in. And I just think, where does that come from? And then I shoot off to the pharmacy. We needed some cowpole. And I get there, done, stripped, no cowpole. I wasn't coming for Nurofen, I'll take two bottles, thanks. We're like, what's going on? You see, it only takes the right pressure and the right conditions and that deep-seated selfishness starts to come out. Was I thinking of the person that was going to come behind me? Was I thinking my own behaviour was contributing to the stripped-off shelves? Or was I consumed by the warm and fuzzy feeling of looking at my own stacked shelves at home. You see, that kind of behaviour just, even compared to other people, it's just plain selfishness. But in the light of God, in the light of our God who shared so much, given all of himself, gone without and ultimately and w willingly gave his life 
for my deeds, it shows my deeds and actions in their true light. Yet part of the beauty of the Bible is that it tells a better story. See, the Holy Spirit uses the Bible to bring you to a place where you have a realisation of your own brokenness, of your own sin. You kind of, the, when the Holy Spirit brings the Scripture alive, you can almost wake up and you realise, I'm covered in muck, I'm broken, and I can't get clean myself. But it doesn't just leave us there. If that's all that the Scripture did, just brought you to a realisation of your own brokenness and just said, well, look at you. It would just be despair, right? But the Scripture tells a better story. The Scripture tells that there is purpose in bringing you to that point because we need to know that we're covered in muck. We need to know that we're broken, that we can't clean ourselves up because when we have that realisation, we know, therefore, that we need a Saviour who can save us and who can clean us and who can forgive us. And so there's purpose in that realisation. That purpose is fulfilled in the Lord Jesus that our brokenness is only made whole in Him, that our sin is forgiven only in Him, that our fractured and distorted view of ourselves are only bound up in Him and put right in Him, that through Jesus and only through Jesus do we come back into that perfect relationship with God. And you see, asking the right questions of any text is vital to understanding that text. And in that sense, the Bible, our holy and sacred text, is no different. So when we come to the Bible, we need to begin with the question, who is God? And read the Scripture through that lens. So let me give you some principles for reading the Scripture, and then I'm going to get into a method of the way that I think is helpful. You can choose it, you can leave it, it's up to you, but I think it's helpful. So, principles for reading the Scripture. Bible reading is part of a... Oh, that really didn't work. My first bullet point's not there. <laughs> and there it is. Bible reading is part of a lifelong process. It's a big book, and it's for your entire life. Bible reading is at its best when you get into a lifelong, consistent and regular habit of reading. So principle one, it's a lifelong process. It's not just for today, it's for tomorrow and next week and next month and next year and next year and next decade and next decade after that. Principle two, where possible, read entire books of the Bible all the way through. See, the Bible tells a story and it imparts truth and it has these grand narratives through its stories. Reading from start to finish of each book can help us understand the grand narratives and the big stories and the declarations of God. And part three, or not part three, principle three, if you're new to Bible reading or if you've been out of Bible reading and you want to get back into it, realise that it's likely to be a little bit clunky when you start. So you might get to the end of your allocated time for Bible reading and you're like, is that it? No voice from heaven? No burning bush for me? Well, be encouraged. John Piper, 
the American pastor and theologian, says this, if you want to hear God speak, read your Bible. If you want to hear God speak audibly, read your Bible out loud. So just know that it might be a little awkward at the start, but I want to encourage you to push through the awkward because there's richness and a beauty and a joy when you get swept up in these wonderful narratives and the impartation of truth into our lives. Because when we do approach the Scriptures of the view of, show me what God is like, who are you, God? We do then get to answering the question that we may well still have underlying, which is, well, what about me? Because when we see Him like this, we understand more about ourselves. But always approach the Scripture with that question, who is God? Right, so now I want to move to a method of reading the Bible. And what I like about this method is that it can flex as you grow in your Bible reading. So if you're really new, you can use it. Or if you've been reading your Bible for years and years, you can go deeper with this method. So it flexes and grows as you grow in your understanding and flex your reading. So step one, what does the text say? There's three questions, okay? It can be three steps, three questions. The first one, when you're approaching the text, what does it say? And this is literally reading to understand or comprehend what the text says. So you read the text carefully, repeatedly, patiently, purposefully, and curiously. So think of it this way. If Nathan was going to come up next week and give you the surprise pop quiz on the passage you're reading, you could nail those answers. The where's, the when's, the who, the geography, who's speaking, who's the audience, literally comprehension. What does the text say? Read the passage through. Read it again. Read it out loud. Know what that passage contains and what it says. Then you go on to step two. What does it mean? So we said, what does it say? And now we go to, what does it mean? And some people have called this the interpretation stage. And the overriding principle, the thing that you've got to have in your head for your whole time in step two, is that the Bible can never mean what the original author never intended it to mean. You get that? That the Bible can never mean what the original author never meant it to mean. And that principle is really important. Because if you start reading the Scriptures and you start to come up with this new interpretation and then you start to talk to other people about it and they've never heard of your new interpretation and then you start to look at some of the throughout history and they've never mentioned this new interpretation and then you look at the scholars and they've never mentioned this new interpretation. It probably means you shouldn't have that interpretation. So it can never mean... The text can never mean what the original author intended it never to mean. Okay? So, overriding principle. But then, we move to, well, what do you do? So, if you're new to Bible reading, if this is your first time you've picked up a Bible and you've just never done this before, 
well, how am I meant to make sense of it? How am I meant to, what? I don't know, I'm just brand new to this. The best thing you can do, my encouragement, would be read your passage and write down your questions. What stands out? What's confusing? What's weird? What was like, what's going on there? I've got no idea. Sometimes as we read the Scriptures, the Holy Spirit speaks to us, and it's like a part of it jumps off the page. It's highlighted. Write that down. And then what you do is you go and ask your group leader all of those questions. (laughs) All the group leaders are suddenly just sinking in their chair. But this is really important. Because when you're reading the Bible with other people, it becomes a rich process. It stops you, as I said, going off on rabbit holes. You're not meant to go down. But importantly, it gives you other perspectives that you may be blind to because we all inhabit who we are. And who we are comes from a background and a heritage and a family upbringing and all of that sort of stuff. And you bring that with you, which by its nature means that you're blind to seeing other ways of seeing. And so I remember last year when we were doing the One Timothy group and Toby joined us for that group, and he was in it. And Toby's got a different background to me. I'm Australian, he's Nigerian. We have bif- different church heritage, different ham- family heritages. And it was such a rich learning process for me. When Toby would come with just a different perspective on the Scripture, because of his different background and his growing up. And it was so rich. And I'd be like... I've never seen it like that. How did you get there? And he would bring these views. It was just so rewarding. Now, I don't want you all searching up church suite to find out where Toby's at group so you can pile in there. That's not the way it works, right? You just need someone, perhaps, that's from a different background, a different family, or perhaps a really different personality to you. And it can help you see the Bible with fresh eyes. See, it challenges what we believe and why we believe it. And when it's done well in fellowship, it's a beautiful thing. See, we want grace-filled discussions that allow us to challenge one another and probe and pursue and say, help me explain how you got there. Oh, wow, okay, I'm not quite sure where you've got to, how you got there. Tell me about that. Not aggressively, not defensively, but it's done in a way that we can learn from one another, from our different backgrounds, as we come all together pursuing the Word and the truth of what's imparted in the Word. So I'd encourage you to do that in your groups. Then, some principles in step two that aren't on the slide, because he didn't... Yeah, anyway... So, just listen to these then. The first one is interpret in context, okay? Interpret in context. And what I mean by that is that a single verse is inside a paragraph, which is inside a chapter, which is inside a book, which is inside a testament, which is inside the Bible. Read and interpret in context. The second one, interpret in view of history and culture. And my suggestion to you would be, broadly speaking, we should assume that the text applies unless context prohibits it, later revelation overrides it. So in the Old Testament, they weren't much into bacon butties. In the New Testament, more so. 
Peter had the revelation, the sheet came down and said, don't treat anything unclean that I've made clean. And now we can all pile in bacon butty all night long, all right? So if later revelation overrides it, or it's unique to that culture. You see, this morning, as much as some of you perhaps maybe wanted to, the men I'm talking to, no one gave me a holy kiss. Because it's culturally limited, isn't it? Sean, sit down, Sean. But you see here, a handshake for some, that's as far as we're going. I, I, I love it. I'm, I'm, not a, I'm not a huge... I've ne- I was never a huge hugger. My wife, my goodness me. We would like try and leave the church when we were back in South Africa. And she grew up in that church, so it was like... I'm like, okay, I'm gone, I'm done, I'm sitting in the car. And she's like, oh, 15 minutes later, hugging everyone and this whole thing. I'm just not, I was just, that was not my family culture at all. But, you know, some people are like, uh, handshake, that's as far as we're going. It's hilarious looking at men. Just, I mean, women, are, I think, are better at this, they're just a bit more tactile. So you get some men, right? So, uh, Luke, stand up, come on. <laughs> so some men, we're just going to handshake, right? We're good with that, everyone's comfortable. Yeah, just get the ante back right now. <laughs> the, the, the next one, right? We go, we go, there's a slightly step in. Take a handshake. I've got the barrier in, but we're coming in for a chest pump, all right? <laughs> That's as far as some blokes will go. That's as far as we're going, right? We're just keeping it there. We're not going chest to chest. And some, we're going all in, like, just like this. And it's a good slap on the back. You see that? It's not, it's, not a, it's not a cuddle. It's not a rub on the back. It's a good slap, all right? And, that's just, and, and so men are going to be along that spectrum in some way. And then, and then there are the guys, that, that man, you see them from far away, and they're, you know, they're huggers, and you're just like, okay, <laughs> nice to see you. I'm standing on this side. And, um, and you just got to, it's, it's funny, isn't it? So some things are culturally bound, and others are timeless principles. And in our interpretation, we need to make that distinction. So when you're reading the Scriptures, and it's certainly in this second stage where what does it mean? Assume it applies unless those see things. Interpret in light of the genre, the type of writing you're reading. So don't read the Gospels in the same way as you'd read the poetic writings. Don't read the prophetic writings in the same way that you might read the Psalms. There's different styles of writing within the Bible, and it's important to know not to read them all the same. You wouldn't go and get, I don't know, who's a wonderful poet? And they didn't know it. Who? I don't even even know. Okay, we'll go for what? Yeats? Yeats? You wouldn't go and pick up Yeats or some classic poetry and be looking for the calculus equation. Right, I'm just going to work out the mass of this solid. Yates is no good to me. So there's different types of writing in the Bible, and it expresses different things, and it imparts truth in different ways. It's not that some writing is truthful and other writing is just like a little story. No, different types of writing are employed to impart truth in different ways. And so just realize the different types of writing in the Bible. And then finally, Scripture interprets Scripture. So the danger here is that you take one Scripture, and you read that, and you 
just leave it there. And so then you don't consider all else that Scripture says about that topic, and you make it the only thing the Bible says. And you fall into a danger of what's called proof texting. So don't just take one Scripture and make it all that the Bible says. Make sure you read broadly. Right, I will scoot on. What should I do? Oh, okay, we've missed some slides here. James 1, verse 22 to 25. But prove yourselves doers of the word and not merely hearers who delude themselves. If anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks at his natural face in the mirror. For once he has looked at himself and gone away, he's immediately forgotten what kind of person he was. But one who looks intently at the perfect law, the law of liberty, and abides by it, not having become a forgetful hearer, but an effective doer, this man will be blessed. So it's around not only reading the Word, but doing the Word. And I've got a couple of things to consider when we get to application. What should I do? The first one is, and I'm going to scoot up, um, any application should be a decision, not an emotion. Okay, this is about taking the, the, the Word, seeing God in it, seeing my life as reflected in the awesome and majesty of God, and therefore, what do I need to do? You see, we are being transformed into the image of Christ, and transformation can be hard. It is hard. And so, our emotional response, what might, when we read the Word, when we read an instruction in the Word, a command in the Word, our emotional response might be, are you kidding me? I can't do that. And yet, we need, if it is the Lord's will, we need to take the hard decision and not be driven by our emotion, but the hard decision to conform my will to His will. Second thing, obedience takes time and over an appropriate amount of time. Okay? Give yourselves an appropriate amount of time. Some habits, practices, and ways of doing life can take longer than others. But that being said, our aim is for complete obedience, not partial obedience. And all I want to say here is that we never want to get to the point of saying, right, well, I'm... I reckon I'm... 73% into the Christ-likeness, image of Christ. I'm good with that. 73%, it's good. I'm going to just tap out here. I've done. No. Our aim should be for complete obedience. There's grace for the time it takes, but our aim has always got to be complete obedience. We're being transformed. So, what should I do tomorrow? Tomorrow starts today. So my encouragement for you today is that you will take out your uh, calendar and find a 15 to 30 minute slot, if possible, 15 to 30 minute, and lock it down for Bible reading. Is it on the train? Are you getting up earlier? Is it at lunchtime? Is it instead of Netflix? Whenever it is, find it today and lock it down, because if you don't, it won't happen. There is spiritual warfare here. And there's an enemy who wants to distract you from things of the Spirit and reading God's Word. So lock it down if you can. People often say, where do I start? Where do I start? I'm new to Bible reading. Where do I start? The answer is really simple. You start in Leviticus and you go to Numbers. 
Just kidding. Just kidding. Come on, I thought that gag would have been a little bit better. Hey? Start in the Gospel of John. Okay? Start in the Gospel of John. And I'm going to finish with this. It was in my notes to finish. Nick didn't know anything about it, but the Spirit did. John 15, verse 10 to 11. If you keep my commandments and you, you will abide in my love, just as I've kept my Father's commandments and abide in His love. These things I've spoken to you so that, you, that my joy may be you and that your joy will be made full. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord God, for your word. Thank you for the privilege of having the Scripture readily available to us. And I pray, Heavenly Father, this week that we all are encouraged, that, Holy Spirit, you've placed a desire in our hearts to begin this journey of a lifelong habit of reading the Bible. Help people to find the time, help people to find the place, help people to find the method. If it feels mechanistic or clunky to start with, Lord, I pray you encourage us all to push through and find our own rhythms in it. And Lord, Holy Spirit, guide us into all truth.